0: Good morning. Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Pastor Jameson. Um, We are continuing this morning in our Summer in the Psalm series where we look at God's wisdom to us, and we are pulling that wisdom out and applying it to our lives. And I'd like to start this morning with a question. The question is this. Have you ever found yourself in an unfair situation? Maybe a situation where You desired to do what was right, but it seemed like the more you tried to do what was right, the less reward you actually ended up getting. Maybe it was a situation where you had a deep desire to glorify God and to follow his ways and to to do what he says, but it seemed like as you did that, you were ridiculed and mocked and perhaps dismissed. I'm sure many of us have been in a situation somewhat like this. When I was in college, um, one of my final grades consisted of the dreaded group projects. Did anybody do group projects in college? Yes. If If you haven't, thank God. He's been merciful on you. Group projects in college are terrible. For this final project, I was a part of a team of five, and it seemed like me And another young lady were the only ones who were really doing the work. We ended up scheduling all the meetings. We researched everything that we needed to know. We prepared the outlines. We corresponded with the professor. And ultimately, me and this other young lady ended up creating the final presentation and doing most of the final presentation to make sure that we got a good grade. But about halfway through the project, I was talking with one of my other male team members. And I was telling him how frustrated I kind of was with his lack of work and participation in the group project, and this is what he wrote back to me. He said, what are you gonna do about it? Tell the teacher, are we fifth graders? He said, just do the work so that we can get the grade. At that point, I was a little bit more righteous and zealous than I am now. And so I remember I responded to him. I said, what the heck is that a response that glorifies God? And he said, God doesn't care about this class. He said, and neither do I. Just pipe down and move on. And I went to a Christian college. (laughs) I graduated from a Christian college. You know, I remember thinking, well, you know, if, if that's how the game is going to be played, if this is how my teammates are going to treat me, if they're not going to participate and they're going to ridicule me when I try to hold them accountable, then why don't I just join them? Why don't I just become like this guy? You know, and I was tempted to become like him and I was envious of his sort of carefree, somewhat brash and confrontational nature. I had a desire to be gracious and to talk through this in a, in a way that glorified God, and I ended up being envious of him. I, I kind of wanted to be like him. Certainly in this situation, I would have much rather traded places with him. I would much rather be able to do nothing and yet be rewarded for that instead of doing all the work and be ridiculed. And I had this thought. The thought was this, is following God even worth it? if this is what following God gets me, do I want this? And that's the question I'd like to answer today. It says, why is following God worth it? You know, Today, we're going to encounter a man who dealt with a, sim- a similar situation, whose heart was conflicted, who felt abandoned by God, who was tempted to give up, but through remembering the truth, was able to overcome and was even able to use the experience to further the message of the gospel. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 73, and I'd like to read the first three verses. Our first point today is the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73 says this, a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now this psalm was written by Asaph, and Asaph was a Levite. He was assigned by King David to lead worship in the congregation of Israel at the tabernacle. He was one of God's first worship leaders. Asaph was also a prophet. And Asaph had a great concern that God's people walk in faithfulness. And because of this zealousness of heart and this desire for faithfulness, Asaph found himself in a seemingly unfair situation. Now, historically, we aren't sure exactly what the situation is, but we do know this. As Asaph is walking through this situation, he holds this first truth in his heart. He says, God is good to Israel, that God is good to his people, especially those who worship him with a pure heart. Now, how many of you would say God is good? Raise your hand. Good, everybody. Check mark. Awesome. Good job. If I said God is good all the time, what would you say? All the time God is good. We know it, right? We know that God is good. and all of our theology, what we know about God from his word can be really boiled down to two statements about God. And the first is that God is good. He's holy, and he's just, and he's benevolent. He's near to his creation. He's compassionate to his creation. God is certainly good. But the second thing we know about God is that God is also great. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's an all-creating God. He's sovereign. God is in control. God is both good, and God is both great. And we know this in our hearts. However, as Asaph considers the world around him and Israel's unique role in the world, he's having trouble reconciling the reality of God's goodness and greatness with what he's actually seeing being played out around him. See, Asaph was an Israelite, which meant that he was essentially a part of this huge national church. Now, all these Israelites combined, created this big national family of God. They were a covenant family, and God had promised his faithfulness to them. But Asaph, being a worship leader at the tabernacle, would have afforded him this unique cross-section of the people of Israel. He would have known the poor. He would have known the rich. He would have known the leaders. He would have known those people who worked in the market. He would have known the farmers. He was a prominent figure in Israel at the time. And Asaph sees that for some reason, it seems as though this good and great God is not acting according to his promises. Instead of rewarding the good and rewarding those who are pure in heart and rewarding the righteous for their faith in him and good deeds, it seems as though he's allowing the wicked to prosper, even though he is great and has the power to punish what they're doing. And Asaph gives us a view of what these Wicked and arrogant people were like. Read with me verses four through 12 it says this: it says, "For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches." Asaph is looking around at these supposed people of God, and he's seeing people that are fat on too much food. They're greedy, and they seem to have no care in the world about it. There's people who, despite their hubris and sin, seem to have no problems in life. They're just gliding along on easy street every day. They boast about their riches and how they make their money. They're prideful about the things that they wear. Asaph says that their heart overflows with foolishness and when someone comes to speak to them about their sinfulness and about their foolishness, they threaten these people with violence. Worst of all, these haughty people speak against God. It says they set their tongues against heaven and they strut about the earth, talking and talking and talking with self-absorbed speech. They're blasphemers who control the people around them with their tongues, and they attempt to speak in the place of a good and great God, and they go so far as to taunt God to do something about it. They treat God as if he does not care about the things that they're doing. I'm wondering, can you picture this kind of person? I think at least at some point in our lives, we've all met this kind of person. Certainly before Christ found me, I was this kind of person, although I wasn't rich. I was fat though, but so. <laughs> Unfortunately, such people exist. And the reality is, some people like this exist within God's family, the church, just as they did in God's people in the Old Testament, Israel. And when we look at them, our hearts can be conflicted. We can wonder, why does God not do something? Have you ever thought, God, why do I seem to experience so much trouble when these people who care very little about your glory, who do not follow you, seem so carefree in life? Why do these people seem so blessed, God, when I seem to lack the favor that you've promised me? Why doesn't the trouble that seems to constantly be falling on me Fall on them. Surely, God, if you are true, surely, God, if you are just, you would do something about this. You know, few feelings are more demoralizing to the Christian heart than going through hardships and experiencing trials and suffering while watching people who we believe deserve to suffer because of their actions escape the kinds of troubles that befall us. And we might feel, surely, this is not what justice looks like. But we can test our hearts on this. And I'd like to ask you a question It says, how do you react when wicked people seem to be the blessed people? How do you react when wicked people seem to be the blessed people? How do you react when the gambler strikes it rich, but the man who has faithfully stewarded his money for 30 years falls into financial ruin. How do you react when the faithful spouse in a divorce is left to pick up the pieces of a broken life while the unfaithful spouse gets to move on without responsibilities as though they did nothing wrong? How do you react when the business down the street who has shady practices and undercuts its customers, prospers, but your startup is struggling? How do you react when you lose the healthy, God-fearing family member who took care of themselves and exercised, meanwhile your cranky old Uncle Cred who, who hasn't eaten a vegetable since second grade is 104? Like, how, this, this doesn't seem to make sense to us. Asaph's heart responded with envy. He says he was envious of these kinds of people. He was envious of the wicked. Asaph's envious heart told him that what God had given him, his position in the tabernacle, his his leadership as a worship leader, the blessings of Israel, this large covenant family, it wasn't enough. And his envy told him that others less faithful than him were more blessed than him. See, my friends, envy is a sin. And envy is not a problem with our circumstances. Envy is not an issue with our surroundings. Envy is a problem with our heart. And untreated envy in the heart can cause major conflicts to arise inside of us. Let's look at the conflicts of a righteous heart here in verses 13 and 15. Asaph writes, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 14 tells us, is not only is Asaph looking around and seeing these wicked people prosper, but as they look at Asaph's faithfulness, they are mocking him. They are slandering him. They are rebuking him for his faith and in following God. And we see that two conflicts arise in Asaph's heart. The first one is this conflict of vanity. In verse 13 he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What what Asaph is essentially saying is, Lord, if this is how you treat your people, why am I doing this? Why am I bothering to live a holy life, to wash my hands, to walk in your ways and to do what is right if this is the thanks I get from you? Asaph is saying, I should be receiving the rewards that they are getting, not this constant mocking and ridicule. My friends, because the envy in Asaph's heart was causing him to focus on what others had. And it was leading him to believe that his righteous efforts weren't worth it. And this is what it does for us. It causes us to focus on what others have, and it convinces us that trusting in God is not worth it. It saps our joy for righteous deeds, it it leeches our spiritual vitality for honoring God, and it focuses inward instead of upward. It focuses on what I lack, not what I've been given. It focuses on how can I get from you, not how can I give to you. And as we focus on our lives with this envy in our hearts, it leads us to believe that God is unjust and not keeping his promises. And even as Christians, we can be overcome with the thought, following God surely isn't worth it. And when that thought gets lodged in our minds, if it isn't confronted, if it isn't dealt with, it can lead to further devastating actions. And this second conflict we see arise in Asaph's hearts, the conflict of severancy. In verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph is saying, my heart was so conflicted about this, it was so full of envy over what these people were getting that I almost removed myself from God's people. I almost renounced my position as a worship leader. I had so much turmoil in my heart that I almost severed myself from God's covenant people, the people he promised his love and faithfulness to. He said, this hurts so much that I almost said, I will forsake these people. Remember, Asaph would have been at the tabernacle every Sabbath worshiping with God's people, and he was so conflicted that he almost spouted his thoughts out loud to the Israelites. That's what it says if if I were to speak thus. He almost read them their mail and said, I'm done with you people. I'm tired of you. I'm over your unfaithfulness. When envy is alive in our hearts, we can often be tempted to lash out at the people around us or to detach from the people we are envious over, especially if we're thinking along self-righteous lines that, that we are more righteous than they are, and yet they are more blessed than we are. And this is the nature of conflict. Conflict always elicits one of two response, fight flight. We either lash out or we run. And Asaph is dealing with this exact thing. How many people have you known that have severed ties with the church because they became disappointed in God based on the actions of God's people? I know many people who said, I don't believe in God. I don't trust him anymore because of what this person did. They say, you know, God doesn't care because if he did, he would do X, Y, Z. And I'm just wondering if it's possible that that their disappointment wasn't really an issue of these wicked people's lack of character or their apparent sinfulness. But maybe there was envy in their hearts and they simply wanted what these people had. Maybe their detachment came from the frustration with seeing these people who were not as righteous blessed. Envy can cause us to think, you know, if God was just, he would make me the worship leader, not her. Or might think, you know, if, if God was just, if God really cared, I'd be leading the Bible studies, not that person. You know, if God was good, he would give me the recognition for my efforts and not these other people who are being Recognized. If God was great, He would bless me and not these people who are not as faithful as me. If God was good, people would follow my superior ideas and not the ideas of these people. My friends, envy is poison in the soul, it wants what others have, and it blinds our eyes to the blessings we have received. And when we allow it to fester in our hearts, given enough time, nothing will be good enough for us. Not God, not the blessings he's given us, not our friends, not our family, not God's people. And I realize this may be a a touchy subject for some of us, but I'm, I'm gonna go there, so if I hurt your feelings, please forgive me. But I know that many of us are here Because at some point, someone in some other church said something about us, or did something to us, or actively hurt us, or disappointed us in some way. Now the root of our departure may have been envy, it may not have been, but I just want to speak to this issue for a moment. And I want us to remember that the church is full of broken and sinful people. And so was Israel. It was full of unfaithful people from the leaders all the way down. If you come into fellowship with any church, whether it's this church or another church, and you come expecting that no one will ever sin against you or hurt you or disappoint you or fail to meet your needs in some way, that is a deeply unrealistic expectation. Because where sin exists, pain abides. It's just a fact of life. But here's the thing. Here's where so many people go wrong. You cannot blame God for the sins of men. You cannot blame God for the actions of God's people. God is great. God is good. He is holy. And we often fall very short of that standard, even the best of us. Don't blame God for that. You know, if I hurt you, or Pastor Dan hurts you, or someone else in the church hurts you, and I pray we never do, I pray that never happens, but if it does happen, that isn't God's fault, that's my fault. That's my sin, it's my lack of care. And we must not blame God. And we must certainly not blame the collective church for the actions of an individual. And yet, I understand Asaph's frustration because God's people have a responsibility to represent God well. We have a responsibility to be holy as God says. He tells us to be holy as he is holy. And I understand the nature of conflict that maybe in your minds and you think about these, these situations in the past. You might be saying, I don't know. That was a tough thing. And the conflict makes sense. And Asaph is conflicted as many of us have been. And he's sitting here and he's considering, do I continue in fellowship with this church or do I sever ties? Read verse 16 and 17 with me. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, when I tried to make sense of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Asaph is saying, I could not make sense of this. It wasn't even worth it for me to do until I did what? I went into the sanctuary of God. I gathered with God's people. Point three is the truth that clarifies. And Asaph makes a decision, he goes to fellowship with God's people. He went and he led God's people in song. He rubbed shoulders with these people. He probably hugged and kissed some of them, maybe even many he didn't even like. And as he was together with God's people, God's eyes opened to the truth. And it was in this gathered throng of God's people that Asaph's mind was cleared and his heart was calmed. And he remembered the truth of God's promises. Read verses 18 through 22 with me. He says, Truly you set him in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. As Asaph decides to go and worship with God's people, he remembers the truth that, no, no, God is true to his word. And people who revel in sin without repentance, they have problems too. That God is not against Asaph and he's not for wickedness. He reminds himself, you know, that people who defy God are often swept away as the consequences of their sins catch up to them. They're not invincible. They're not above calamity. God does see. He remembers that God is still good and, and God is still great and he does reign justly. God does not allow evil to go unpunished forever. However, Our just God is also merciful, is he not? Our God who is holy and righteous and who reigns in purity is also long-suffering with sin and failure. And this is the beauty of his nature. God practices forbearance. He does not allow the consequences of our sins and the fullness of his wrath to fall on us in this life as it should. Instead, what did God do? He sent his son Jesus to reveal the truth to us. That God, in his mercy, in the face of his people's great unfaithfulness and sins, sent his sinless son Jesus to forgive them and redeem them. To wash them and to cleanse them from their sins. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that Asaph is expecting the other Israelites to live. And it's Jesus, not Asaph, who perfectly obeyed God's every word and the desires for him. And Jesus died on the cross. He lays down his life as a sacrifice for God's unfaithful people. And he pays the debt of their sin. The sin that had stacked up before God and the calamity that, that I deserved and that you deserved and these unfaithful Israelites deserved and ultimately Asaph deserved did not fall on them, but it fell on Jesus instead. And he dies in our place so that despite my sin and despite your sin, we might experience God's mercy, not God's judgment and prayerfully not Asaph's, and hopefully not one another's, that we might escape the justice we deserve. After three days, this Jesus, he rose from the grave, he was resurrected into a new life with God and a life that is imperishable, and he calls us now to respond to that in faith and to trust him, and when we do, he tells us that we have eternal life as well, a life that cannot be taken away from us despite our struggles with sin and despite our unfaithfulness at times, and he gives us this by faith, not by works. We realize this, we are not saved by our obedience, we are saved by Christ's obedience. We are not saved by our own merit, but Christ's merit and his merit alone. And this tells us that because it's his obedience and it's his merit that no one can boast I pray there will be no ASAPs in this church because all those given new life have been given a gift that we do not deserve and the playing field is ultimately level. And yet so many look at the church and they say the church is full of sinners. Yes, it is, every one of us. But the church is full of the presence of Jesus and the church is covered in the righteousness of his blood. Severing ties with the church is the worst thing we can do because when Jesus saved us, he didn't just save us from our sins. He saved us into a family. He saved us into a new identity. And I want to ask you a question. Is your family perfect? Mine's not, except for my wife. She's perfect. (laughs) My family's not perfect. We hurt one another every day. We sin, and we fight, and we disagree, and we squabble. And in our hearts, sometimes we don't care about one another. And in our hearts, at times, we judge one another. And every family has its flaws. But God's family is made righteous through Jesus. <laughs> made holy by his blood. And in God's family is the only place where we could recognize the truth of the gospel and be held together by the truth of the gospel, not how we feel about one another in any particular season. Here's the reality. If you stay here long enough at Convergent Church, you're going to have two thoughts about, about me. You're going to say, "Man, Pastor Jameson's the best pastor ever. he's awesome." and then you're going to run into a season where you go, "This guy's an idiot, and he has no idea what he's doing." It'll happen. It'll happen. that's why we're held together by the gospel, not how we feel about one another in any particular season. And we come together to remind one another of this truth, to convey this truth of the gospel to one another so that we might not fall away from God and we might not fall away from God's people. But instead, as we tarry together, looking to Jesus and hoping in the gospel, we become stronger, we become holier, we live more righteous lives. We practice transparency. Instead of judging one another for our sins, we can bring our sins to the table and say, hey, I'm struggling, would you help me? And this is how we grow. God's people are sinners. And instead of running, let's look in the mirror and say, I'm a sinner too, and this is probably exactly where I need to be. And the family of God with Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to save healthy people. He came to save sick people. It's often said that the church is not a country club for saints. But it's a hospital for the dying. And So we come. And when we're looking around and envy, comparing, and simply judging people by what they possess, and the sins they're committing, and their attitudes. We aren't seeing the people that Jesus died to save. We're only seeing the actions that required their salvation in the first place. When I'm judging you, I'm not seeing the person that Jesus died to save, only the sin that required your salvation. And when we do this, if we hold this envy in our hearts and we judge one another, we'll be like Asaph whose heart was embittered and says he was like a brutish animal towards God and we'll never be satisfied with that kind of mindset. But God is merciful to Asaph and he's merciful to us and look what he reveals to Asaph in verses 23 and 24. He says this, Asaph says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is our last point it's the portion that satisfies. You know, even though Asaph was angry and embittered and Frustrated and tempted to sever ties with God's people. What was God's response to Asaph? Faithfulness. He sticks near to Asaph. He doesn't desert Asaph. He holds Asaph's hand even though Asaph doesn't want to hold hands with unfaithful people. He guides and counsels Asaph, holding firm to him as he was tempted to wander away from God and away from God's people, even though Asaph would have otherwise dismissed wandering sinners. It's in the fellowship with God and God's people that Asaph remembers, no, God's goodness and greatness it's true, and Asaph's heart becomes satisfied in God alone. He moves away from this envy that's in his heart, and he stops looking around at the current landscape. Instead, no, he looks up, and he remembers, God is enough for me. He is enough for me. He knows no matter what happens to God's people, and no matter what happens in his life, Asaph has a faithful God who promises to lead him his whole life long and to take him to heaven to be with him. And I'm just wondering how different might our outlook be on others? How might it change our perception of people if we focused more on the eternal destination of struggling saints instead of the sins that they're struggling with today? If when someone in my life is acting unfaithfully, if I looked at them and said, no, Jesus died to save this person, instead of focusing on their folly. Because when I focus heavenward and remember who God is and what he's done for me, my heart is satisfied in God. He heals my wayward desires. He removes the envy. He he takes away my desires for others possessions. He removes the the righteous judgment from my heart that lacks compassion. And I remember that my reward for a faithful life is God. Do you know that? That our reward for a faithful life is not a nice house. It's not a nice car. It's not obedient children. Okay? Men, it's not a trophy wife. Women, it's not a husband that makes 400k a year. It's not any of these things. Our reward for faithfulness is God. And here's the most beautiful part. God has promised himself to us even when we're unfaithful. He's already promised us the reward. So our faithfulness is not to simply claim the reward. It's because the reward has already been promised. And when I remember that my reward for a faithful life is God and nothing less, he changes me. But when my thoughts are here on earth, when I'm looking around and I'm telling people that they are unrighteous, when I'm envying what they have and I'm tempted to call them out, when I'm full of envy, I am discontent. So we started this morning with this question, why is following God worth it? It's very simple, because God is an all-satisfying reward. Your heart cannot be satisfied with anything else. Your heart will not be satisfied when you have what your neighbor has. Your heart will not be satisfied when your neighbor is walking righteously. Your heart can only be satisfied in God. When God is enough, your soul will be satisfied now. But when he's not enough, you will be a miserable person like Asaph. Asaph. And it's this wickedness that sort of seeks this immediate gratification, but righteousness yearns for a future hope. Wickedness sets its mind on today, but righteousness sees the world through the eyes of heaven. And this is what God did for Asaph when he decided he was going to go to church. Look, for, look at verses 27 and 28 as we begin to wrap up. It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Before me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph is discerning the end. He's looking through the eyes of heaven. He's saying, no, surely a righteous life trusting in Jesus will culminate in And Jesus, by his grace, taking me to heaven, but a sinful life will culminate in separation from God. The righteous reign with God, and the wicked are punished for their disobedience. If we live a life of sin without trusting in Christ as our Savior, we will spend eternity without God's grace. And as many have said, hell's hot and forever's a long time. It doesn't matter how much you prosper now, The story ends with separation from God unless we confess our sins and trust in Jesus. So I beg of you, if you have not done that, be reconciled to God today. All you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he died and rose from the grave but if we live life trusting in the righteous sacrifice of Christ to redeem us, no matter how much we suffer, no matter how much ridicule we face, no matter how much conflict we walk through, no matter how much apparent lack we face, our future is a glorious inheritance where God satisfies every longing of our hearts. That's our future, no matter what today looks like. A place where suffering is no more, sadness is no more, lack is no more. Where envy doesn't even exist anymore because everybody's perfectly satisfied in the presence of Jesus. In Christ, that's your future. Christian, hold on to that and not this world. Set your mind on that and not what's going on around you. And Asaph ends this psalm with a call to action that is so fitting. It's a major call to action. I love that he ends this way. He says, Because God has satisfied my soul and he's given me all he needs, because he's become a refuge for me where I can hide in safety and trust in the truth of heaven, he can what? Tell of all your works. Asaph can tell others about what God has done. Here's a truth I want you to take home people who don't know God are not your enemy, they are the mission. People who do not know God are not your enemy. They are the mission. Asaph was looking around at its apparent unfaithfulness and saying, all these people are my enemies. But how does he end? I'm going to tell them about your works, God. I'm going to tell them about what you've done for me. I'm going to tell them about your goodness and about your greatness. Wicked people aren't your enemy. And many of them could become your brothers and sisters in Christ if you would simply tell them about what God has done. It's a beautiful thing. How beautiful it is. How much much cause for rejoicing does it birth in our hearts when someone who once defied God and mocked his name and slandered his people becomes a son or daughter of God? How beautiful is that day? And so, church, if God has not given up on us, even with the sinfulness in our hearts, let us not be a church that gives up on sinful people. Let Convergent Church never be a holy huddle where we look out in the world and say, those people don't belong let us remember where we came from and say that was once me and my unfaithfulness and whether it's within or without the church do not envy them either for God is good and God is great and he rewards those who follow him with a pure heart with the fullness of his presence let's pray Lord, Father, help us to see the world through the eyes of heaven. Lord, help us to be a people who do not focus on what others have been blessed with, but instead can set our eyes on the great inheritance that you promise for us. That we might be able to be a people that says, because you've given us all we need and you've satisfied our hearts, we can give people what they need. We can give them the gospel. We can pour out our riches. We can befriend them or help our hearts not to envy over what the world has but Lord, let us speak of you in such a way that the world would be envious of us because of what we have in you. Lord, that we would speak so clearly and so clearly emphatically and so powerfully about this heavenly reward that you've given us in Christ that they would say, I want that. I want to turn from a life of unfaithfulness, and I want to follow God like you. Help us to be a people that simply says, following God is worth it because he satisfies my soul. But you are kind, and you are faithful, and you satisfy the sinner's heart. We love you and we bless you in Jesus' name, amen.